Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, Adam Holyoke. Adam Holyoke is now an entrepreneur, but some of you may remember the name as an ex-England cricket captain, and is probably one of the only athletes in the world to be a pro athlete across three different types of sport, as a cricketer, then as a boxer, and then as a cage fighter. He's now an after-dinner speaker, a writer for the Ocean Road magazine, and also does some work in the mental health space and lives on the Gold Coast. So we're in for a pretty amazing interview on this with our next guest. Um, and I'll just, I won't go into too much, but I'll just say this a couple of things. As a reflective leader, Adam's leadership journey was not without its ups and downs. He recalls leading his team to victory in a cricket tournament where they were the underdogs. However, he's also faced a challenging situation where his own position in the team was being questioned. He made decisions based on the the expectations of others rather than his own instincts, leading to a loss. This experience taught him the importance of staying true to himself and the pain of regret being worse than the pain of losing. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. It actually goes in some pretty amazing directions and has had a lot has lots of words of wisdom. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. The next guest on our show, someone pretty special um, from uh, all over the world. Different people would know this guy, Adam Holyoke. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, mate. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, I won't do a big introduction. Uh, I'll actually do that in um, in the the written part of the podcast, and I do a little intro, a verbal intro before before I edit it and put it on the put it on the um, the podcasting streaming services. So let's get straight into it, mate. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming onto the show. Um, every guest gets asked the same two questions to start with. So the first question to you is, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be yesterday or it can be back to when you were a five-year-old or even younger. Yeah, um, it's a pretty easy one for me, really, because um, I didn't really have much leadership uh, qualities or leadership experience, probably more so than qualities, um, until I was asked to be the captain of Surrey. So that's quite late in terms of um, someone who goes on to, you know, end up being known for their leadership. I, I was so it wasn't until I was about twenty three, really. Yeah. Um, and got, and and for those of us that don't like, I know your story. So captain of Surrey in what? Uh, in cricket. So okay. So I, um, yeah, I'd, I'd been, I'd grown up playing all different sports and got signed on by Surrey professionally at the age of 16. So I'd been with Surrey for a number of years. Um, I was 
far from what society or more importantly probably <laughs> cricket coaches would consider leadership material so um i never held a, a captaincy position in any of my youth cricket youth rugby any sports i played and i played a lot of sport mm. um i never held a a position of leadership until I was asked to be the captain of Surrey. So actually I was 21. So um, I wasn't even captain of the Surrey under 19s. Mm. So um, to be captain of Surrey at the age of 21, when they came and said to me, oh, we want you to be captain, I thought there was someone standing behind me because I thought yeah. they, they must have the wrong person. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that was my first experience. And it was, it was a tough one because our side then was – full of international players, uh, a lot players that were a lot better player than I was. Um, so as soon as they said, they asked me to do it, I was like, well, first, my first emotion was I was proud and honoured. But the second one was, how the hell am I going to do this? It was like, I'm not even in the top five best players in a team. that's only got yeah. 11. So, um, yeah, that was my first experience of, of, of leadership. Well, let's um, let's explore that then. Uh, there's just so many different, like the, any, each of these interviews goes in a different direction. So let's. Um, I, I love how you've answered that. So you thought you didn't have the goods up until someone asked you why? Why? Let's let's explore that. Why didn't you think you had the goods? You like I think your description was um, uh, society would never view me as leadership material until they asked me. So what? 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 Why did you have that perception of yourself? I didn't have that perception of myself. I, I perceived myself as a lawyer, as a as a leader, but the um, I just don't think anybody else did because I, I definitely had a bit of a streak to me. I was um, I was fairly uh, fiery, and I was prone to getting myself into trouble. I knew I was a leader, a sort of spiritual leader, in the fact that I knew a lot of the players were followed my example. It just wasn't always up until the age of 21. I wasn't necessarily setting the best example, which I'm guessing why coaches and administrators hadn't trusted me with leadership roles because it would have been a risk, to be honest. And even at that time, I think it was still a risk because I was still, you know, misbehaving and probably partying a bit too much, getting in fights. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, like I said, that's not what, <laughs> no. Like from their leaders, you know what I mean. So whilst I had good attributes, I had some bad attributes as well, and I think it was probably just quite good foresight from the the people who entrusted me with a role. I guess they might have crossed their fingers and hoped that giving me the responsibility made me um, come into line and and sort of get rid of some of those negative qualities which I had. Okay, so let, let's go to the other end of that question then, the answer to that question. You said, um, yes, you were proud and honoured to be asked, but then you had um, you weren't even in the top five international players of that Surrey cricket team. How did you manage it? What did you do to to actually take on that role? Well, I think, I think the reason I was successful, it was purely kind of by accident. Um, I just I owned it I just said straight up you know guys you know I'm new to this role you guys are gonna have to help me out um as in not help me out but you, I'm, I'm not this is our team yeah not my team I'm not here to tell you what to do yeah if I 
go in there and right, we're doing this, we're doing that. I don't, I don't know. It might have worked. I don't think it would have worked. Um, so I said, look, I need you buy in. You know, I'm a young, I'm the youngest guy in the team here. Um, so I need you guys to sort of, I'm going to make mistakes. And I need you to pull me up on them, and oh, you know, I'm going to make some decisions that are that I think are right. But this is our team; it's not my team. This is kind of a democracy as such. So yeah. I need put, and I think my lack of leadership in that, or acknowledgement that I'd had a lack of leadership in that instance, helped me out. I don't know if that works. No, sure it does, that, yeah. No, sure that's... you're the CEO of um, Qantas. I'm not sure that same approach works, but uh, in that instance, it worked. Okay. Do you want to, um, like some of the listeners to this podcast will probably know the top five players you're talking about um, uh, uh, that you considered above you. Uh, and can you give an example of how they might have mentored or coached you or supported you early on in this journey? Well, the the... first mine was Alex Stewart um so he was the England's most capped player ever until yeah. he um and was a very successful captain in his own right but he was away with England a lot so that was why I was being asked to be captain because he was away with England so much so he really stepped up and and mentored me into the role um another guy called Graham Thorpe who played 100 test matches for England uh we had a couple of overseas players Sakhalin Mushtaq, Azam Mahmood Pakistan we both played hundreds of games for Pakistan um we had uh Martin Bicknell who'd already probably played 10 years of professional cricket um so there was there was plenty of players and and, you know they're just the ones who played a lot a lot of international cricket there were other seasoned county players who were more experienced than me as well so it certainly wasn't a shortage of options and I'm still to this day I'm a bit curious as to why they chose me but it worked out so yeah can you give a specific example about where one of those five players that you just named and probably Alex Stewart from what you said he mentored you um what were some of the the wisdom or the sessions you have with some of your peers that made the difference it's strange I I feel like I had a natural I had a knack for the leadership from the from the personal perspective so that wasn't an area where I necessarily needed a lot of help. So my relationship, I was quite good at building um, a trust between individuals. I always speak, I think I always treat people fairly and honestly and um, the same. So I don't have favourites. I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that regard. I, I treat everyone, whether you're the prime minister or um, someone who's, you know, down on their luck in life, I, I kind of treat everyone the same. So that's a fortunate trait of mine. So. I didn't have a problem with the individual handling with individuals. It was more probably the other side of things. It was like I always say you either captain up or you captain down. So above me was a committee, uh, a bunch of guys in suits yeah. who, who, uh, who I wasn't au okay fait with the way they operated at that stage. I'm 21 year old. I'd never been into a board meeting in my life. Yeah. So um, so I he really mentored me through that. He took me to my first ever cricket committee meeting. And um, and that was an eye opener for me. I was like, man, I've never seen so many people sitting around in suits, yeah, talking about things in such a structured way. So I had to kind of learn to communicate with them. Um, and then also, I guess 
captaining as the team. Individually, I was good with each individual, but as yeah. a team, I had a tendency to get a little bit emotional. Um, and when I say emotional, angry, I mean angry. Yeah. Up show my emotions a little bit. And, yeah. and because of the sort of personality I am, that made people feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So for me to manage that as well. So they're, they're the two things that stick out, really. That's very that's very honest of you. That's um in the show. It's um they obviously I mean that's why you're on the show. Uh your story is pretty unique and so interesting. So that's you know, you've you've kicked it off with with an amazing fact, like at twenty one years old you're captaining <laughs> a a well regarded uh, cricketing team that the anyone in the cricket world knows and you're doing it at 21. And so it is, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So second question, that's a pretty hard one to beat, actually, that one. But second question is, um, what's something about Adam Hollyoaks that no one knows? Because you're, as you say, you're a pretty open book. Yeah, I, and I, when you, you know, when you sort of prompted me before this for for that, I had to think, I think maybe you knew I was going to have to have some time to spend on this because I'm a very open book. And often when I get asked to do interviews, people say, oh, I won't talk about that if you don't want to. I said, man, just talk about anything. Like, it's just not who I am. I, yeah. I, I, I sort of, I sort of, I, the thing I like about myself is I just say it as it is, good or yeah. bad. Yeah. What's all. So I guess when you asked that question to me to give me a, a bit of chance to prepare for it, I was like, man, I think I've said everything that there is. But then I guess I, my mind went to, okay, some stuff that I've been doing recently, which, people um won't be aware of is that I've, I've kind of i've become quite religious in the last year or so so i guess in fact i go i go to church a couple of times a week which i don't think this people that's not a big deal a lot of people go to church and that's but i guess from the places i've been in my life you know from to professional boxing and professional cage fighting um I guess that's probably not necessarily something you associate with with someone who's that my my mum's very religious um and she's always been on at me about getting yeah. to church and and um and I, it's just something which just recently I read a book um um what's it called the power of uh, the power of positive thinking actually mm -hmm. I read that book and I was you know it's a self-help book on how to think positively and and as I got into it about probably 10 15 20 pages I was like man this is this is just a hard sell on on religion yeah oh like I was just getting fed this stuff and 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 ultimately it came back to faith and faith and faith and kept about faith and I don't know by the time I got to the end of the book I had this desire to rediscover a religion again and go back well so I've, i think i've got a slightly different view on it to what a lot of people do but it's um been a really enlightening period for me the last year i'd say it says um a lot of and again that's that's a really honest answer and as you say probably not not many people would know that but what i love about that answer is a lot of a lot of and this is probably one of the reasons why you're a guest on the show like You've been identified to me as a as a leader who does things differently and a leader who's making a difference. Um, but a lot of leaders leaders aren't leaders unless they're always looking to expand their knowledge and stuff like that. So 
even your answer to that question, like I, I read the book and 20 pages in, it's a hard sell on religion. A lot of people would have closed it then, uh, closed the book then, but you kept on reading. You were open to the content of the book till you got to the end. So that says a lot about you because not everyone has that openness. I was in a really boring hotel in Bali at the time. and just <laughs> having, so I had to plough on through. I'm, I'm slightly ADHD, so normally at that stage the book would have gone. That, there's probably... 20 books I can see at this moment on my shelves, which are half read. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing that I stuck with that one, to be honest. Good on you. Okay. Well, now this interview is not about me, but totally about you. So you have a life story that not many people have um, in a number of different ways. So, and you're, you're from what I've heard, you're, um, I mean, your, your leadership journey from you started at Office 21, um, is quite amazing, and I know things that you're doing now. I think in the mental health space where you're helping people. Um, so uh, you take us where you want to take us. How does Adam Holyoke become the leader he is today? And this, we're in your hands. You, you tell the story the way you want to tell it. Um, well, I guess I guess we sort of pick up from that 21 year old getting asked to to captain surrey uh like i said i had no aspirations to be a leader i had no aspirations to be captain all my aspirations were to be the best cricketer that i could be but leadership had never crossed my mind before then all i wanted to do was be the best batsman and the best bowler that i could be and um and then somehow or other i just evolved into this player and i took the role seriously and i love my team doing well so um so that was that was that. So I was twenty one. By the time I was, um, well, by the time I was twenty four, I was captain captain England Lions, which is the England A side. And by the time by ni- in nineteen ninety six, I was the captain of England. So um, I was, so was twenty five, twenty four actually. By the time I I captained England, so yeah. it really happened quite quickly for me. Um, and I wasn't the greatest cricketer. I mean, I'm not. I'm not telling anything that the your listeners won't know there I wasn't certainly wasn't Don Bradman or um Steve Smith I was you know I was a sort of a battler of a cricketer as to um I didn't I wasn't blessed with a lot of natural ability I, I just had a, a hard work ethic yeah and um and a good good attitude and a good character I guess so um that I had to have a good character because you can't be a bad cricketer yeah <laughs> bad character you know, have bad character and bad work ethic. So I had to make up for that with the other aspects, which I guess kind of forced me down that leadership path. So, um, do you want to, um, like you're like to the rest of us, uh, the rest of us mere mortals, um, like you're at 21 years old, you're the captain of one of the best first grade cricket teams in the world, Surrey. And then at 24, you're the captain of the England Lions, the, the A team for England. And then at 25, you're the captain of the English cricket team. So you've lost over that pretty quick. Um, what, what, um, what, do you, can, what do you remember about then that, that built on you as a leader, uh, uh, maybe? Uh, and were there some really challenging times where, where you, you questioned whether you could do it? And something happened where you pushed through to become the captain of England. Well, I think 
ultimately, I think the secret is in what I said at the beginning in that I'd never had aspirations to be a captain. So therefore, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the, the sports psychology of it, but the biggest thing that sportsmen encounter, the biggest in, inhibitor of sport is um, the fear of failure. So if you're a leader and you're fearful of your job, you your leadership, in my opinion, um, you can try and protect your job and you play very safe and you don't necessarily say what you want to say. And But if you don't really care if you're the leader or not, you just do what you think is right. You're not worried about the consequences and you and you just say what's on your mind. And I mean, as, so long as what's on your mind is actually correct. Yeah. Then you, you know, the only times in my career career where I, I probably didn't do as well as I could have was when I started playing defensively. Like, oh, okay, I, I don't want to lose my spot in the team. Yeah. The time when people play well is when they just go out and play the game and enjoy it. Yeah. I guess with my leadership, I just always, I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't have the aspirations to be a leader, but I enjoyed leading. So, but I was never scared of someone tapping me on the shoulder and going, mate, you're not captain anymore. If that was, I thought it was like, fine, if, you know, someone else to be captain, as long as I'm still, in, I wanted to be in the side. Yeah. Um, and I think in a roundabout way that helped me just be natural and just say what I thought. And yeah. It, it, I mean, if, if you're scared, fearful of, of what you're saying, well, we've all been in that situation when you were around someone who we're a bit anxious about, and they're not giving us anything back, and we and we start, you start, yeah, nervous about how you're, what you're saying in case, you know, like when we, we all go take your minds back to when you're at school and there was a particularly scary teacher who loved whacking people in detention, and you're scared of detention, and and you start stumbling over your words or think overthinking yourself. It's a bad position to be in. Whereas um you know I, I wasn't fearful of the committee or anyone above if they came to me and said I was not going to be captain anymore I was like all right fine I don't really want to do it anyway yeah so um I just captain freely and I think that helped me can you remember um like the being the captain how long were you the captain of the English cricket team um only for about two and a half years I okay so that's long enough can you remember a time in that then, because um, you, you said as a 21-year-old, you is, this is not my team, it's our team. Um, yeah. Can you remember a time in that two and a half years as the English captain where your leadership and the buy-in to that leadership created an opportunity that otherwise wouldn't have happened? Um, I don't think I understand the question. Probably. No, I was wondering whether I asked that right. Um, was there a challenge in that time as the two and a half, in, as the captain of the English cricket team, where you worked with your team and it was your leadership, the way you approached your leadership rather than telling them what to do as a team, you did something that wouldn't have happened if you'd have done it a different way? Um, I, I guess my first four or five games as, as captain of England. Uh, are you talking about from a negative sense or? Wherever or, you want to go. Yeah, where, like if you, you think, like, you know, 
did you do something that was a mistake and then you had to recover from that? Um, did you, did the team say you're an idiot, Adam, or, or did the, the, the team rally around you and and get through it? Yeah, well, you could you like you've got you've, you've there was, got. There's probably two examples that spring to mind. Um, one example was we went out to Dubai to play in a tournament with um, Pakistan, India, and the West Indies, and in that part of the world. No one beat India or Pakistan. And we didn't even send a full side out. I got made captain. So we were almost going out there, lambs for slaughter. Yeah. Um, no one expected us to do well. They didn't even send TV crew out to, to cover anything, which is unheard of. So, um, yeah, and I remember speaking to the side. I always, I think I always liked captaining when, oh, it's, it's easier to lead when no one expects anything of you, isn't it? So let's face yeah. it. Yeah. High expectations, then there's more pressure. So there was no expectations on us, and we had a bunch of guys who were making their debut. So I remember just trying to draw on the fact that we were underdogs, and no one rated us. So I loved, always liked drawing on uh, on that because I felt like that galvanised the side that could mm. make a side. I think if you're a leader and you can make people buy into the common goal. A, greater good than their individual self then you're on a you're on a winner so for me i just sort of i didn't think it through i just i think i just naturally was like man no one expects us to do well out here the whole world's watching everyone's expecting india and pakistan to kick our ass hmm. but hey you guys have all worked hard you guys deserve your respect as well so let's go and show these guys what we can do it's easy because we were in a well, no one expected us to do well yeah. but we actually went on and, and won that tournament so um i think that's an instance of, of, of a, a time when i i maybe inspired our side to play greater than the the, the expectations yeah, yeah, um, yeah. by the same token as about 18 months later we um we played south africa and my own spot in the side was coming into question and uh I wasn't that confident as myself and mm. I made a couple of decisions, tactical decisions on the field, which were, I would say were uncharacteristic decisions of what I would choose to do. I was captaining how I thought other people yeah. thought I should captain in that position. And I played way more conservative than I would have done. And we lost the games. And then I guess um, I still sort of think about that and regret, I regret those so after that time, I kind of made a promise to myself that I was never going to captain the way I thought other people thought I should captain and I was going to do it my way because the pain of losing is bad, but there's nothing worse than the pain of regret. So, you know, yeah. you can forget about losing, but, you know, regret will live with you forever. So, And you can I, see, I mean, this, this is an audio interview, but in your, in your face, it still hurts. Well, that's 30 years ago and, you know, that's that's the definition of regret when you're thinking about things that, I, you know, I can't even necessarily remember the, the results of the individual games, but I can remember the pain of the regret. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, um, yeah, that's an example when I guess my leadership suffered and wasn't as good as it could have been. Well done. That's a real. You've been, as you said, uh, you you won't. You told us about what you say to other interviews. You don't hold anything back. So um, that's no pretty. Point. That's pre pretty wonderful. Um, no point in holding anything back because 
you know, I mean, I played, I've been retired for 20 years now, so, and no one cares, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I may tell the story honestly and in the hope that someone, people might be able to get something from it. And no. you know, there's no point in me coming on here and telling everyone I was, I was the greatest cricketer that's ever lived. Lie, <laughs> and I wasn't. And, um, you know, in a world where everyone, a lot of people are, selling themselves is like i mean i'm never going to be the greatest creator in the world but at least i can be honest so. yeah yeah can you remember it sounds like um like you've covered that part of your life and career pretty well was it when you were captain um of the british lions i think you called it and then the english cricket team is there someone that stood out to you as a mentor then or, or a support person to you during that time that you really relied on and, and why? There's uh, a couple of people, actually. I've just been to Perth for my first cricket coach's funeral. Um, he was probably the biggest mentor from a cricket perspective. But my father's, um, you know, my dad's always, <laughs> you say dad, I always go to dad because dad was also played cricket. But mum, but, you know, my parents, mum, mm. a lot of my character I get from my mum pretty fiery um <laughs> dad dad's pretty fiery as well so they're both fiery um i guess my default position is that fieriness um and i've had to learn to through reading and understanding myself better i've had to learn to knock the edge off that aggressiveness um yeah. But I think I'd rather it that way than than to brought me up to be apathetic and have to learn um, passion. Yeah, have to lift my yeah. Rather, you know, bring be brought up as aggressive as I have been brought up, and then have to learn to to temper that. Good on you. And uh, so understanding yourself, like self reflection. How, um, what, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you understand yourself and it's the hardest thing in the world isn't it um you know self-reflections i think the first thing it's got to start with you've got to start with honesty um for me i try and do it regularly i don't like doing it because it's hard it's awkward it's probably the equivalent to what other people i, I, don't, I don't mind going to the gym I don't, I'll, I'll train in the gym i'll throw up without a problem i don't care yeah. I'm used to that. that's but for me sitting there in the mirror and asking myself you know what I need to work on myself. That's that's hard, and for me, that's probably what other what equivalent to other people finding things really hard and not wanting to give up in the gym. And, and when I'm asking in myself, you know, you know, really honestly, what do you, you know, why do you do that? Then you can't begin to improve as a person until you do that. So yeah. I think the other day, I found myself. I don't even know why I was doing it. Someone asked me, oh, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I got up at like. I got up at five o'clock this morning and I was working hard and I was like, I didn't, mate, I got up at 20 past five, but you know, I, I told them five o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why, why did I do that? Why did I tell them five o'clock? Was it because like, I, I was trying to impress them. Or I was trying to, I was like, man, that's just not honest. That's, that's a lie. Why am I? Well, so you have to really, well, you got to, if you want to look into yourself, you've got to really want to know the answer. Yeah. Really true. I mean, we a lot of people look and on a higher level. You look at alcoholics, mm. 
they can't admit that they've got an alcohol problem. You know, that's a quite an easy thing. But, you know, for us, we're all going through life not able to admit. I mean, alcoholism is quite a serious condition. Mm. There's other things, you know, like why do I tell these little lies? Why, why, do I, why do I wear those clothes? Because I want people to think I'm cool. Yeah. Once you can start looking into those things and and it's a not it's quite uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, yeah. Like when I first had, like started thinking, why did I choose that shirt and not that one? I was like, oh, because that person's going to be at the gym and I want them to think I'm cool. And I'm like, well, then you can start to unpack why you why you do things. So, and it's quite a journey because I, I think I'm you know I'm only halfway there. I've got a lot of a lot of things which I do which uh, I I'm not that proud of. So. I've got to um, just keep working on it, and it's, it doesn't come naturally to me. Good on you. Um, and I think a lot. Of, I love where you went with that question. Um, I you've mentioned your first cricket coach a couple of times now, once in this interview and once before this interview. Um, do you want to actually name who he is? Because um, you went to his funeral last week. Yeah, his name's Peter Carlstein, and he um, uh, he was an ex South African player. Um, amazing man. Like, he probably. Yeah, I say amazing man, but there's probably for all the people who love him, there's probably an equal amount of people who yeah. hate him. Yeah. He was a hard man, and um, a lot of people didn't really like his approach. But for whatever reason, um, he was very honest and very straight to the point of being it being quite uncomfortable. So, but um, I think I, I identified early on that I probably needed someone like that to. Um, to make me aware of the faults that I had because I do have a tendency to think I'm perfect. Yeah. Um, so I probably knew that I needed to recruit people around me who were going to help me keep it real. So my dad helps me keep it real and Peter Carlstein, he definitely helped me keep it real. So um, uh, I know that's good advice for any young athlete, really. I think, like, you know, it's easy to surround yourself with people who tell you how good you are. It's also equally important to have people around you who will tell you how it is and if you're not handling yourself the right way so um that's a good yeah. um i like how that you coach that the uh, good advice for any young athlete but would you expand that to good advice for anyone that wants to be a leader yeah i, I think so um i guess finding that person away from your environment i think it's hard to be a leader probably be hard for me to lead with him barking things and de-alphering me in front of a group of people, it, w- it would be hard. But um, I think you need, everyone needs a, a mentor, I feel. Every leader needs a mentor away from from the, from the whatever they're doing. I, I coached a Queensland um, batsman up here in up in Queensland and I, one of my first roles with them was to coach the Queensland under-17s. Yeah. And you can imagine... Um, Queensland and you know 17 year olds are quite influenced you know, easily influenced and and you know they I come there and they, they literally listen to everything I say like it's gospel yeah uh, and one of the first things I said to them you know you've got to find a mentor because I'm a coach here I'll be a coach for a year or two and then you know then you'll be in the under 19s or then you'll have another coach and then you have that coach for a year or two and then, you know, then you've got another coach. You might have five coaches from age of 16 to 21. Yeah. You've got to find that one person who's going to be there throughout that whole journey who knows you 
and knows your default position, knows knows your journey. Yeah. So Peter Carlstein, he was there for me from the beginning. So when I was just playing club cricket, he knew, and then all the way up until when I was playing captain in England, and he could turn around and say to me, "Now you're doing this. Remember, you used to do that." He knew the whole. He knew the whole picture. Yeah, the story. Yeah. yeah. Someone coming in and just knowing having known you for the last six months or a year, it's hard for them to be able to give you that same feedback. So I think it's really important to align yourself with a mentor. Of, yeah. And also other thing about that is I feel, and I probably just something I'm just thinking of now, but um, I think it humbles you a little bit, having someone who you're acknowledging has greater knowledge and greater mm. experience. I think one of the mistakes a lot of leaders make is thinking that they know everything yeah, and um, and then that vibe comes across to the people that are following them, and that's quite un unenjoyable if you're with a leader who thinks they know everything and is just barking orders at you. It's not, no one wants that. Yeah, so I think if you can humble yourself in front of your team and show that you know there's someone that you acknowledge has greater knowledge than you, I think I don't think that's a bad thing either. Yeah, I liked um, you said something there. Uh, he knew your default position. So I think you've hinted at it. So, but what? That's where we just go back to naturally. What's your default position? Well, yeah, my default position is to fight. Um, you know, if I get challenged, you know, some people go back down or they'll quite, I'll go quiet. Mine is to fight. If I get hurt, my default position is to fight. So often, someone's aggressive towards me, I'll be aggressive in return. That's my default. And that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but in some yeah. situations don't you can't do that so um and we've all got a default position some people you know if they're attacked they just cower yeah other people stop think it through clearly and then come back with a response you know my default position has always been to, to go aggressive so i have to constantly rein myself in so um good stuff good stuff one of the other guests on the show um she used to say her family used to have really robust discussions around the dinner table and she found uh, an exceptional leader herself but she said she had to really pull herself back in a work environment not to have robust discussions around other people because they weren't they weren't used to it yeah that's fascinating that's a really that's a topic that i'm really exploring at the moment i'm in the middle of the moment i'm writing a book at the moment called from amateur to professional um and it's basically about the journey um from being an amateur athlete all the way to professional athlete and the attributes which you need and what have you. And one of the things that I, th I thought was important within a team um, is healthy conflict. Yeah. So, and by that is the ability to have conflict and then get over it quickly. So if you can, mm. as a leader, it's very hard to, if you create an environment where you don't want conflict, no conflict mm. at all, what starts happening is you start people start talking in corners and yes because um they, they're not allowed they don't have the freedom of speech so you get these little cliques are forming where people start talking about yeah. one another and um but then by the other thing by the other reckoning if you allow everybody to have just say whatever they want you have these massive fights and you mm. have you have a side which is unhappy yeah if you can manufacture or create a situation where you're encouraging these difficult conversations, but then also as part of that, you're asking people to evolve 
into being able to get past those difficult conversations and then yes. get back onto their professional respect for one another. So you and I, if we're in an environment with a strict corporate governance, I might not feel that I can say to you, hey, mate, I don't, I don't like your headphones. Your yeah, headphones. yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, or I don't, I don't like your haircut. Um, yeah. There's not, there's not much of it there. No, mate, no, no, no. I, I, I knew you'd go there, but. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if I'm in an environment where I can't say that, I can't. Then you know, that's probably a bad example because it's not. No, really it's a great good. example. No, it's but, but, uh, yeah. If I'm in an environment where I can go, mate, if I start yelling at you about your headphones and then you start yelling back at me about something else and we can't resolve it, then that creates a frenzy in the team or the workspace. Yeah. Whereas if I say, mate, I don't like your headphones, and you can go, well, I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. We get it out and then you go, okay, mate, that's no problem. I can go and change my headphones. Yeah, yeah. And we get to a result and we move on and the team moves into a better position. So it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting path that I'm going down at the moment. So Good on you. Good on you. So how long has that book been in uh, in creation? Well, it's actually, what well, I say it's, I've only been writing for about three months. So I'm about 200 pages in. I've absolutely astounded myself how i've um smashed it out i have also got a uh a history of of not being able to finish things so yeah yeah hopefully the next i probably i've probably got another quarter to go and i can actually finish it off and get it out there so well done can't wait can't wait good stuff yeah. good stuff um so You've taken us to your your captain at 25 of the English of the English cricket team. What's next? What's the next part of the story? I've actually uh, I have heard in your cricketing career you you were I think you were captain when some terrorism incidents happened over in in yeah. yes is that is that at the same time or is that another time? No, that's a bit later. But I was actually coaching so. Um, so I retired. I, I kept in England. I ret in, retired from cricket in 2004, and then I professional fighting, boxing, and MMA. And um, then when I finished, I got to the point where my body was a, a wreck, and I realised yeah. I, I knew all I wanted to stay in competitive environments. So I soon realised that I needed to become a coach. Yeah. So I um, I ventured into that, and one of the first things I had was to coach a side in Afghan Premier League. So um, I went. I went out there and I advised against it because they said it was unsafe, and you know, I thought people were carrying on a little bit. And um, probably an example of me not necessarily taking the advice from people that I could have. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Then on the second day we were there, there was a, a suicide bomber took out nine of our security. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like I was probably about. 50 meters to 75 meters away from the bomb blast. I mean, it sounds worse than it was, but there was like a number of walls of security between me and that bomb blast, and a number of walls, as in the outside of the stadium. Then yep. the we were well inside the building. So, albeit in distance, it wasn't far. There was um, there was a lot of stuff between us and the, and the bomber, but it was probably one of the most surreal things that I've ever experienced. Mm. Um, in that I wasn't scared. I should have been scared. Yeah. And I'm 
I'm not saying I wasn't scared from the perspective of wanting people to think, wow, he was so brave. It's actually more of a concern that I wasn't because I just didn't quite realise how dangerous it was and how um, it took me back to, uh, I read something, I can't remember the sort of the, the author of the book alludes me, um, but he talked about, it was a philosopher from I think 1600s, and he said, no matter however many men die around you, no man never thinks it's going to happen to him. Yeah. So, you know, you can go in war, people going out over the trenches and everyone else is getting shot and you don't think it's ever happening to you. So I was like, yeah, okay, some you know guys who drove me to the ground in bulletproof vehicles that morning, they're all blown to pieces. Yes. In my mind, I was like, it concerned me that I didn't, I didn't think that that could have happened to me. Yeah. I actually stopped and had my sit down and look in the mirror. I was like, man, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, I'm a father of three kids. You know, mm. where I'm disrespecting my job to them to be there you know i'm putting myself in this situation yeah so um but it's it's weird that it takes that in a situation like you would think that everything would come to you realizing the danger but it it didn't and yeah surprised me really so what um how did you manage your team um in that situation and what what yeah what happened is that the game's over? Like there's no game and you take your team out of that country or out of that situation? Or how do you manage your people in something like that? Well, unfortunately, for it was it was a game where we had, I think we had a squad of 14. We had 10 local Afghan team players and four foreign overseas players and I was a coach who was an overseas player. Um, it I didn't really have the choice to take but you know there's those people live there, that's their life. Yeah. For us I got to pack up and leave. But um at the end of the tournament I had a decision to make because in my contract it said that if anything happened that I could leave. Yeah. So I had a, a pretty tough decision to, you know, decide what am I gonna do? Am I gonna stay or am I gonna leave? And, um, you know, I decided not to make that decision at that time because I was pretty emotional, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I say, when I talk about my default position, my default position was I was angry. I don't know who I was angry at because they were dead. Yeah. So it was not like I could go and get it. It's like, man, the person who did it's been in 25,000 pieces. Yeah. Yeah. that was my default position, so I needed to sleep on it. A few people made the decision to go home within half an hour. They were gone. They were out of there. Yeah. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to try and think. I wanted to make a decision that was non-emotional um, both ways, as in I didn't want to make the decision to stay and just go, right, I, I'm staying and not think it through and yeah. danger, or I didn't want to just take off and leave and um, not do – the job which I'd signed up to do uh, I'm, you know I'm still I think it's important to my dad always said when I was growing up it will stay till the job's done yeah um, I had those thoughts ringing in my ear so um, yeah so I love them was- uh, I love these interviews uh, when people start quoting what their dad says uh, like you never forget some of those quotes 
<laughs> and my dad's come with a lot of good quotes. I mean, there's others that I've struggled to get past. Like he said, never trust a man who dances as well. So, um, and never trust a vegetarian. So he's he's come up with some real wise ones, and then some of them I'm still trying to fathom. <laughs> <laughs> good on you. Good on you. So I'm totally in your hands, and I and I jumped to go. I've I've kind of t- taken you out of um, the cr- chronology of it, but I think that's relevant to yeah. leading as a as a in a in the cricket world. So do you want to go back to you know, what makes the English cricket team captain um, become a boxing competitor and then an M, an M, a mixed martial arts competitor. Do you want to take us down those journeys or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it, it was, it was a strange one. It was, so I retired. I, I'd been pretty smart with my finances when I was playing. I'm, I'm not a, not a, I don't, I don't care for cars. I don't, I've never done drugs. I don't gamble. I'm not a big drinker. I don't, party a lot so I lived a pretty basic life and you know as I was fairly successful during one I made some good investments at mm. my chance um not because I'm particularly astute in that part of uh, of the life but I made some good and I retired at the age of you know 32 so um but then during there was a period of time where I was just not particularly enjoying life because I'd, I'd lost any kind of direction or I didn't have a goal and um and then I, I realized that I needed to be back into that competitive what I I mean for a lot of people it seems really strange cricket to boxing and MMA it's like it doesn't make sense but I'd done boxing since the age of 12 and mm-hmm. during the off seasons when a lot of other cricketers went and played golf I used to go and fight so, okay. uh, yeah. so it sounds odd I think people just thought yeah, that's a strange career change but it wasn't quite as strange as it sounds. So yeah, and it's been a passion of mine from the age of twelve. So mm. good stuff. Um, I, I, I'm nothing like you, but in my policing career, they started a police legacy boxing tournament. To right. so you know, cops had to fight other cops. So um, I'm not. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I learned how to do it for a couple of years. So, but I wouldn't nowhere near in your league. So, um, what? What would your advice be uh, around, like you, you took it up at the age of 12, what did you learn from boxing um, that you kind of carry through you, through with you, with the rest of your life? Um, I guess it gives you uh, a toughness, doesn't it, to get through uncomfortableness. Um, I guess that's something... I think cricket teaches you the same. I mean, people don't associate cricket as being one of the toughest games. I actually think it's probably other than golf. I think it's probably the mentally the toughest game. I always say the more time you've got left alone with your own thoughts is the toughest thing, you know, whereas when I'm fighting, you're just fighting and you're reacting and you haven't got time to think. You're just reacting. And yeah. uh, but with cricket, you've got a lot of time to, to think in between balls, you know, your mind goes off and starts playing games with you. So, um, you know, for me, fighting was just trying to get myself into, I started learning a lot about my mind and I needed to become more organised in my thinking when I fought so that when my mind started to wander off, I had to bring bring myself back so that I could access the skills which I'd trained at training because, you know, you're – 
emotions can get quite high when you're fighting, uh, especially if you're like my, myself, who's got, who can, you know, rev quite high. Yeah. Um, so I had to try and learn to. So what, how did you do that? How did you? Uh, that's interesting. I think I got an I got an probably an inkling, but to someone that's never fought before, um, how did you do that? How did you? Because it's coming at you all over the place. Um, how did you learn to? I think you said organize your mind. Yeah, I think a lot of it's about um, planning scenarios in your mind before you get in there. So when they, I was. I, I always freak out young when I'm training young fighters or young cricketers. I always freak them out a little bit. So I always explain this to them. What if I came to your house tonight and set it on fire with the, all your family in there? It's a little mm. bit drastic analogy, but um, would you be scared? Would you be panicking? And they're like, yeah. I said, you're probably going to make a whole bunch of mistakes, all right? You're going to run to the wrong door. You're going to. So they're like, yeah. I said, so. That's the same thing when you're mentally preparing for a game or a fight. You've got to run through all these scenarios. If I if I told you I was going to come and set your house on fire in a month's time, you're going to pre- you're going to prepare relentlessly over the next month. Fire drills, you know, runs here, go to there, don't open that door, go down to the stairs, lay my lay on the bed, kick the window out, step onto the roof. You're going to plan meticulously. When the fire comes, you're still going to shit yourself. You're still going to be like nervous, but you've got a plan. You've got a direction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that's what I call it. It's like having under pressure, having a plan of what you're going to do and how your mind's going to take you in the direction you want it to go. I love that. Um, in my world of policing, uh, for the for the big the big stuff, that's that's the message. If you can have a picture in your mind for when it really hits the hits the fan. Um, yeah. You actually, you actually might go all right, <laughs> and but, the people, and the people around you. <laughs> well, you might not. Yeah. But and all we're yeah. trying to do is increase the probabilities of you doing well. You, I mean, there's no guarantees in life. You know, I might get burnt to death in that fire. Yeah. But what I want to do is give myself the best chance possible to get out of there. So it's the same in a fight or in a game of cricket or anything. All I'm doing is, just, you know, sometimes I, I, I use an analogy. I spoke to a. Um, psychologist I, I don't think he was a particularly good psychologist when i was with him. and he um and he told me that i was definitely going to be successful the next game i played because i'd just come off a career best score for surrey um i just reached that done my highest um, result on the fitness test physically i was in the best condition i'd ever been in mentally i was in the best. so he said you you know you, you will be successful tomorrow and i said well how can you say that he said well you know they're all these factors and i said yeah that that's what do you think the guy on the other side's doing? He's, you know, he's got his fitness testing. He's got his psychologist. He's got his, he's praying to his God. Yeah. He might be just better than me. You know, yeah. I think preparing and knowing that, understanding that, you know, you've got to accept whatever comes your way. Do your best to prepare to give yourself the best chance of being successful. And then the rest is out of your hands. Good stuff. Well, you've t- definitely taken this in. Um, I love that. You've taken us into leadership, kind of unwittingly, in your explanation of of boxing. How do you prepare for to to get better in boxing, and how you coach other fighters, young fighters? So, um, what about MMA? Because boxing compared to MMA is at a whole nother level, and a whole another skill level. 
what made you go there? Um, it was just because, purely because I was already halfway there. I mean, I had got a background in wrestling. Okay. Um, boxing since I was 12. And then someone said one day, man, you know, it's not hard. If you've got those two skills, they're the two, that's the foundation of MMA. It's not hard, you know, just add some kick defense, um, you know, learn how to defend some kicks and, you know, some takedowns or, you know, learn some in between, some stand-up wrestling. And, um, you know, you basically got the game for, I was never going to, I'd never threw a kick in my entire MMA career. So um, you're not going to, you work within what you've got. Yeah. So I didn't, I knew I was a terrible kicker, so I didn't, just didn't bother throwing one. Yeah. Um, But the other stuff I had was good. And I just tried to create a game plan that enabled me to execute the things I was good at and limit the other things that he was good at. So, um, yeah. So let, let me ask you this. Um, you don't, like you, you said about the uh, the suicide bomber that you weren't scared. Do you, When you walked into the that cage that the, they call cage fighting for the first time, were you scared? Or is that not part of your makeup? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to sound like a wanker here because... Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure scared is the right, I mean, look, you train, it's like, um, you know, we used to, were you scared when you went out as a policeman? Like you train for the scenario. So in your mind, you've trained for the situations that may come up. Yeah. I mean, for me, that sounds scary going out as a policeman because I don't know it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't stopped to consider the dangers of what might, if, if I stopped and someone went through, this is a possibility, this is a possibility, and I'd created in my mind that I had answers to those situations, then I don't think, I don't think I'd be scared. But if I, someone asked me tomorrow to go onto the street as a policeman, I'd be scared. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not trained for it. I'm not, yeah. no, I'm not, but you know, for me, sport is just about, you know, I'd train this situation and yeah um a lot of people say to me how do i build confidence you know you've got a lot of confidence how do you build it you know do you just like talk to i said well yeah you've got to talk to yourself confidently but you know i could say to myself i'm the greatest policeman in the world as much as i like if i go out there tomorrow i've got the first clue yeah 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 i said it's got to come from your training you've got to train um till you not till you get it right till you can't get it wrong and then build the confidence from knowing that when the lights are on and and the crowd's in and people are shouting the other person's name that you're going to be able to access those skills under that pressure so um i don't i feel like my training for cricket came in quite handy for um for fighting i was it sounds really cliche and and quite, i don't think i was ever scared i was i mean i was i, don't, I, was, I was scared of losing yeah yeah really scared um i think you know the dangers going into it so you know you know that you can end up knocked out or choked out or whatever and you kind of come you've got to come to terms with those otherwise that's going to be too overpowering so yeah and, I, and I, 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 I please um 
just give me a let me give you a lifeline there. I'm no way in the world trying to build up. I think you said a wanker at all. Um, you've uh, actually you've actually answered the question in a beautiful way. No matter what the challenge, if you prepare and plan for it, and 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 to act under pressure, you give yourself a chance. Well, you do, and then and then you can sort of pin some sort of confidence on the fact that you've done the work, and it might be a false confidence, but um, you know. I, I went into every fight believing I was going to win it. <laughs> wasn't <a> <laughs> yeah. But, um, so I never went into one thinking, "Well, oh, I've got no chance here." If I had that, then I would be—I probably would be scared. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. So what? Um, I think what we might—I think you answered that really well. So what? What else do you want to talk about? What makes you, Adam Holyoke, the leader you are today? So what? What? what depths of setbacks what depths of character building moments what wins have you had to create who's here today talking to us uh, i'll be honest with you i think the only thing which builds who you are is the failures yeah you know i've failed more than anybody um i think i failed at cricket a lot i failed at fighting a lot and I failed at life a lot because a lot of people haven't failed as much as me because when they fail once or twice they give up and they do something else hmm. look at that and then like a lot of people say to me oh man you must have been an amazing cricketer I'm like not really <laughs> I was just stubborn um and I just didn't give up and every setback that came along I just kept on going um it's about keeping on going and not giving up. It's just so easy to give up and just then once you give up, then you start something else and then you end up going down that and then get when that gets hard, you give up. And so, like I said, that's in that very nature of that means I've failed a lot. Yeah. Uh, and failing a lot does build resilience. Um, yeah. I've had a lot of bad shit happen in my life as well. Um, but I'm now at a point in my life, I'm like, man, well, what are you going to do? Hey, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to hurt me? Yeah. What are you going to do? Like, leave my kids alone? Yeah. I can deal with, like, you know, I've, you know, my, they, my brother died in a car crash. Um, I had a financial um, failure, big financial, lost all my money in 2009. Um I got divorced in 2000 and can't remember. That wasn't that big a deal. Was it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but whatever. I got that. So I've had, I've failed at things and, um, but, but, can but, I... but you can look at it in a number of ways. You can look at it and go and focus on it and go, oh, that was so terrible. You can go, well, I got through that and the sun came up the next morning and I was fine. And I'm like, what are you going to do? What are you going to, how are you going to hurt me now? What are you going to, what, how, What's life going to throw at me that's going to – nothing because I've been through the worst things that can happen. Other than my kids, leave my kids alone and then I can deal with anything. Yeah. One of the other people I've had on the show, and he's, he's actually one of my best mates, um, and he's very similar to you um, in a lot of ways. Uh, he – we often talk about it, um, and you just mentioned that, you know, you, you lost all your, your money. Um, so he talks about it, uh, and I won't say who – 
someone close to him talks about, well, you know, if I lost it all, I'll just, I'll just start again. But when you lose it all, your mindset changes um, and you have to re... Well, I think I would have to rebuild myself. How did you... Um, how did, how did Alan, Alan, Adam Hollyoak survive losing all your money and having to start again? Well, like I've sort of already said, I'm not not that – I don't spend a lot of money. I don't have a particularly lavish lifestyle. I don't have a lot of wants or desires. I don't – I got a, I got a Nissan car. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I look at me, look at the – I don't know, the reviewers can't see it, but I'm dressed like shit. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not like I wear gym gear. I I wear thongs. It's like um, so I don't. So that's that's a help. Um, but I guess probably more than anything, it was just the psychological dent to the confidence, which which you know, uh, with the failure. So you just got to get past it. And then yeah, I think it came a point about six months later when I realised I wasn't doing anything any different to. What I did before. I'm doing the mm. same stuff. I'm just uh, my car's a bit slower, my house is a bit smaller, and can't go out eating in restaurants every single night. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that I ever did anyway. But um, so it helps you. It helps keeps things real, keeps a bit of perspective. There's a lot of people out there that are doing it tough, so it's easy to let your mind go and think, "Oh, I could have had this, I could have had that," and then you're kind of living in the past. But right now, you know, I woke up today, I had a nice coffee this morning and I sat and I listened to some good music on my, um, on my stereo and I sat out in the sun for a bit and done some good work today. It's, um, so a lot of people think happiness is something you know, large and looming. When I get to $2 million or when I get to this or when I finally leave uni or when the pension and when I retire from work, then I can be happy. It's like I don't think that's what happiness is. I think happiness is acknowledging the little happy things that happen every day and there's lots of them you just need to stop and see them you know like you know like i'm sitting here now doing this interview and i'm i've got looking out over some nice trees and hear the birds and just you know it's nice so, you know i'm like i'm enjoying the conversation yeah yeah same here. <laughs> stopping it stopping and acknowledging the these things are enjoyable and then you look back at the end of your day and you go man there was 20 or 30 things that I enjoyed today and life's pretty good. Okay. So that, that for me is important. I think that, that's, that attitude kind of helped me get through it. Good. It's, um, you're taking us in uh, different directions and you I can't wait to read your, read your book because it'll be full of this kind of stuff. So, um, uh, you're very, uh, it's interesting where you've taken us all, all the way through this. Um, where do you live now? I li- I'm up on the Gold Coast actually. So that's a good topic in itself because, you know, like, this is not a great place for me to be. I mean, it's a beautiful place for me to be. Don't get me wrong. It's amazing. And, like, if I was to choose to live anywhere, it would probably be here. But, you know, as far as opportunities and career and everything's concerned, it's, you know, let's face it, I go back to England and I get, I've got a lot of opportunities back there financially. But, you know, here's a good lifestyle and, you know, I'm not, going to make a lot of money here there's not a lot of money here for ex-english career captains on the gold coast yeah but um you know i i, I figure I'll, I'll i'll make it work just just i'll find a way i always have done okay well let me um go from i was um introduced to the possibility of interviewing you through a friend of yours um who's in the psychology space um tristan um I, I yeah 
um, and I I heard that you're kind of involved in some mental health um, initiatives where you're trying to benefit people that have had some challenges. Do you want to do you want to take us there? What What are you doing now? Yeah, so we've um, we've helped. You know, I, I worked with Tristan for a couple of years now. He's um, he had a a program which was just based on men's mental health. It was it was it was started off just really helping men in a group situation um, come out and discuss things and, and take away a little bit of the stigma that people are men. I mean, we're men, you know, like you can even probably listening to me on here, you probably know this is guy's macho, this guy, you know, invincible. He's, yeah, and you kind of, we, we act that way a little bit, don't we, as men? We yeah. Can, you know, we never, I never, I'm not going to start crying on here or, or admitting that I'm, you know, what well, I should do, but you don't because you're men and we're, we, you know, we've got to uphold a certain image. So I think the idea is to give men that respite from that role that we play and come out and just have a talk about it in the group situation. And, and, it's, and, and you find that there's a lot of men that have similar things, going, especially when they get to middle age, you know, like you start losing your athleticism, start losing their hair like you, mate. And <laughs> Stop getting fat like me. It's like you know, it's um, you, you you know, you can start to have questions about yourself, and you know, I think Kristen's a you know qualified psychologist. Um, he's been doing this space for a long time, and I've been and I'm um, studying as well. So it's a it's a it's a fascinating topic, and I'm I think we're seeing a lot more men with mental health problems coming out. I don't know if it's because now they're talking about it, and that's the first part of the evolution or if there is actually more people with mental health problems i feel like there is more people with mental health problems yeah yeah um what are you studying you alluded to you're studying something what are you studying i'm studying sports psychology okay um yeah so sports psychology but there's an element of psychology in it as well yeah okay and what um i i is that so uh, are you leading a business in that space at the moment or what what are you doing now well now i've got a, a couple of products which i'm um producing they're from there in a, the i'm writing a book as you know um but i'm also um i'm produced a, a product for filming sport so it's well it's not a, it's a product that protects your phone and gives it um the ability to um, get closer to the action without getting smashed, like with you know, and be. I started off because I went down. My my kids are both elite rugby players. I took yeah. that standing a shoe up again, trying to lean the phone up against it, trying to see, and um, and then you know, I'd go down to the Queensland training, and you know, I have my phone. My phone's like my phone's like half my net worth. These things are so expensive. So yeah. like, and I was like, if this thing gets smashed by the ball. So, um, and I started thinking about how would I go about protecting it? And then I'm like, well, you, you know, you'd make a case. And then I'm like, well, you're going to be walking around with a case that's constantly, you know, it's too big. It's not practical. And then, well, I'm, different people have got different size phones with different cases. So I've created a case which phone sits in and that's about to be launched on the market as well. So good on you. dabbling in a few things, mate. Good on you. You're like... Um... I read another guy's book, um, Mark Wales. He's an ex-SAS soldier. Um, he won some Australian Survivor in the oh, last yeah. couple of years. Um, but the, his books 
about very similar to you in, in between the big stuff he's a, he's this entrep- entrepreneur um yeah, so it's a it, it, he's, the book's called survivor so um it might interest you look i we could talk all day but let's um let's wrap this up because you've been so honest and kind of forthcoming with a whole range of leadership stuff all the way through if someone was going to go down the path of being a leader in a similar path to you that that has this fiery kind of fallback position um uh, which probably sums up a lot of us um mm. what what would say two words of wisdom be from adam Holyoke to someone venturing on the leadership journey as we bring this interview to a close the number one is don't take yourself too seriously and don't try and act as if now just because you're the leader that you know everything there's a certain humility in accepting advice from the people that you're leading and it 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 creates a buy-in from them so if i'm there telling you if i say to you mate you've got to do this podcast this way this way this way yeah you feel powerless you're not empty well you're not empowered at all and you're doing what i tell you to do after a while you're not going to enjoy your job you're not gonna if i say to you mate i trust you 100 percent to produce the best podcast you can do you go for gold mate i'm here for you yeah it's, it's the same thing but we've just i've just empowered you and you you will now put in that extra effort for me when i ask you to do something in the future um so i think you, the, the power of articulation is important uh, understanding that you're trying to get the best out of the person for their benefit and not it's very easy and i learned this from having a teenage daughter it's very yeah. easy to tell them what they need to do and then they start to resent you yeah whereas if you just say oh you know what do you think the best way to go about it is they'll come to the right answer but they'll think that they've come up with that answer themselves so i think trying to create partnerships with people rather than dictate to them you'll have a look at any like dictator that's ever lived you know they, they were never really loved no you know? so um the great leaders are people who inspire if you inspire someone they'll do anything you want them to do tell them what to do they'll resent you that's really good so that's your two or was it two it was i don't know empower, empower no i think that's pretty yeah. good actually it's funny that's, um we haven't re- we haven't re- Yeah, you go. And don't take yourself too seriously. It's like yeah, everyone thinks as soon as they um, become a leader, they've got to lose their sense of you know their sense of humour. Or we're just trying to do our best. That's all you can do. Um, Control the controllables. Just do what you can do. And if it's not working out, don't get too upset about it because people can feel that coming off you. Yeah, no, it's but what what and we haven't researched this at all. But this this. kind of the theme behind the Courage to Lead interview series is identifying leaders who empower others to do their absolute best. <laughs> so there you go. Um, you, and you have just, you've finished the interview with that. Um, so create buy-in so that they are empowered to do their best, um, bring the best out of them. So I couldn't have scripted that better. So, so thank you. Um, that, that brings our interview to a close. It's been an absolute pleasure, Adam. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Well, how good was that, ladies and gentlemen? 
And to summarize what we just heard, I'll leave you with what I kind of finished with as I introduced this guest, Adam Holyoke. Words of wisdom from Adam. Adam's advice for someone embarking on a leadership journey is not to take oneself too seriously and not to act as if one knows everything just because they are the leader. Adam emphasizes the importance of humility and accepting the advice from the people being led. Until next time, thanks for listening. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sickard. It was edited by Alan Sickard and mixed by Alan Sickard. The theme music is by a musician called Savick and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickard. Thanks for listening.